Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. The page number is printed on the cover of the bulletin if you'd like to read along. There's a, bullet, or a, a Bible in the bench in front of you. Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if a daughter asks for a fish, will you give her a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your mother in heaven give good gifts to those who ask her? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. I've been living with grief for a long time. My son died in the fall of 2014. He would have turned 24 this Saturday. Grief is making me a different person. I can feel it happening. The process is like erosion. Entire mountains have collapsed inside of me. Sometimes I feel strip-mined by grief. Because the mountain is gone, there's no slope to guide the rivers. The water has gone still discolored by the particulate matter of missing mountains. Sometimes I feel shattered by grief. Where there used to be a mountain, I now pick my way through jagged rocks. From time to time, the splintered rock pops like ice. Treacherous shards fall from broken mountaintops like spears. The ground inside me hasn't settled yet. Although I've been living with grief for a long time, I'm still a displaced person. I'm a stranger here. When someone asks me how I'm doing, I usually feel a moment of disorientation. In this new landscape, I don't even know where I am. Many years ago, before I had children, I attended a workshop on grief. 
At one point, the facilitator gave each of us a worksheet. It was a standard piece of paper. On each page, there were three words. The letters of each word had been rearranged to make them unreadable. For example, a word like B-I-G was rearranged G-B-I. The facilitator gave us a few minutes to unscramble the words. I felt pretty confident in this exercise. I'm usually pretty good at word puzzles. The first word was short. I unscrambled it easily. The second word was a little longer, but it came to me fairly quickly. Although the third word was the longest, I was feeling pretty confident as I looked at it. I juggled all the letters looking for some pattern to emerge, but no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't rearrange them into a word. After several minutes, the facilitator asked, who needs more time? Reluctantly, I raised my hand. There were a few others in the group who raised their hands too. I could hear some of my classmates whispering things like, well, that was easier than I thought it would be. That wasn't very hard. I started to feel embarrassed. I kept rearranging the letters. I put them together in different combinations, but I couldn't find a word. I just couldn't do it. The facilitator said, okay, that's all the time we have. Please turn in your papers. After the papers were passed forward, she informed us, not all of these worksheets were the same. <laughs> For some of you, the third word was just a random collection of letters. The solution was impossible. <laughs> well, that got my attention. She asked the people with impossible worksheets to describe what their experience was like. People used words like bewildering. People said things like, I felt stupid. I felt lost. The facilitator said, everything you're describing is what it feels like to grieve. I think the facilitator was exactly right. Grief is disorienting. It is also physically painful. It's emotionally draining. In so many ways, grief is debilitating. I find it exhausting. From within this place of exhaustion, I encounter other people. I think most people want to be helpful, but in this age of global positioning satellites, we quickly lose our patience for anyone who can't find themselves on a map. We're problem solvers. If grief is a problem, then solve it. Often those who mean well are full of advice. Read a book, take drugs, get right with God, count your blessings, do something. If grief has transported you to a foreign landscape, then get a better map. In my experience, this sort of advice is never helpful. I'm already exhausted. I don't want the responsibility of homework. From my perspective, these suggestions tend to say more about the speaker than they do about me. My grief makes other people uncomfortable. They want me to get over it. They want to believe we live in a world where every problem has a solution. For me, that world has collapsed. The resulting dust and debris is irrefutable. 
Advice only reminds me of how exhausted I am. So I try to avoid those who want to fix the problem. There's another group that I try to avoid. And I say this with humility. There are some people who say the right thing, but they are not safe people in my life. Often this is in the context of Northwest Yearly Meeting. There are pastors and church leaders who have publicly condemned me and my ministry. I've been accused of malpractice of the gospel. When those same people want to offer sympathy for my loss, I feel such anger. I think their sympathy is probably genuine, but their comfort is no comfort. This is what I've learned. Kindness that begins after a loss doesn't feel like kindness. It feels like social obligation. How we treat each other day to day sets the context for who we can be to each other in a crisis. If you want to be a loving presence in someone's life, then you have to start building the right kind of momentum in that relationship. You have to start today. Because you can't burn bridges and expect those bridges to function when someone is hurting. How we treat each other day to day sets the context for who we can be to each other in a crisis. Grief is changing me. Living as a displaced person inside my own heart is exhausting. I found that the people who trust me are the most helpful. The people who trust me are willing to let me move at my own pace. They are willing to let me choose my own destination. They are willing to hear my pain without creating a solid block of advice and locking it away in the repository of Yucca Mountain. The people who trust me are willing to follow my lead. I experience that sort of trust as a very loving gift. I think we Christians have developed a relatively patronizing attitude about love. Jesus asked, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Today, I think Christians are likely to reply, but what if my son is gluten intolerant? Wouldn't it be more loving to give him a stone? We're pretty sure that people making a request know less about love than we do. And so we feel compelled to say, sure, you say you want X, but maybe it would be more loving to give you Y. We think it's our responsibility to figure out what is most loving and offer that. We just don't trust people to name the sort of love they need. If someone asks for $5, we imagine they might use it to feed their addictions. And so we decide it would be better to give them a granola bar and some clean socks. I'm sure that we can come up with examples of people who have asked for things that do them no good. It's true. But don't let this small truth eclipse a more wondrous truth. Love changes people. 
Giving people what they experience as love is transformative. When we watch Les Miserables, aren't we thrilled when the bishop gives Jean Valjean all of the silverware that he stole? It's foolish to reward someone's larceny, but it's the kind of foolishness that can change someone's life. It is the nature of love to trust. Paul writes, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love is the opposite of control. Love is how we make room for others. And part of making room for others is trusting them to know what they need. This kind of trust doesn't mean you have to give other people what they want. You are not obligated. Just because someone asks for bread, you're not required to become a baker. You don't have to do anything that is wrong or scary, but consider letting people name what is true for them. Trust that other people are experts. Trust that other people are the experts in what they need. Listening to people say what they need without judgment or advice can feel like such a gift. There is no formula to grief. People need what they need. I've been living with grief for a long time, and for just as long, I've been living with people who've been living with grief. Our paths are not the same. Our sense of timing is not the same. We have been working to give each other the space that we need. Giving space is an act of trust. It is the opposite of control. The journey through grief is painful. It's disorienting. These are the things that I have to weather. Unless people trust me to name where I am and what I need, then I have to endure these things alone. I am grateful for those who trust me enough to be with me where I am as I move at my own pace and choose my own destination. I am coming to see how necessary this is to the work of love. Friends, are you able to say what you need? And just as importantly, are you able to hear others when they say what they need? How can we create a space for people to say what they need without feeling obligated to give what is not ours to give? 